0: Scripture today is from Nahum one one through seven. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord.
1: morning. Well, as the kids are being dismissed, you can turn in your Bible to the book of Nahum and the scripture that we just heard read. Thank you, Faith, for reading that. You've probably seen in movies or read in history about the gladiators of ancient Rome and the, their games in the Colosseum. These games that they played, they were slaves or prisoners or professional fighters and they would fight often to the death and the winner would stand over his defeated foe weapon in hand but he would often wait to deliver that final fatal blow because he would look to the crowd to see what the crowd wanted him to do what would be the crowd's response did they want the victorious gladiator to show mercy and let him live or that day were they in the mood for blood Well, this was shown in the award-winning movie Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. In that story, in that film, we saw the crowd make their wishes known after many fights in that film. But then after the crowd made their wishes known, every eye would turn then to the emperor himself, who was watching, with his arm outstretched. And the crowd and the emperor in this film would give the verdict... Through the signal of their thumb, up or down, mercy or death. Interestingly, historians tell us that we've got it backwards. Actually, thumbs down is what meant mercy, as in lower your weapons. But either way, I think people sometimes view God like that emperor. Up in heaven, kind of holding his arm out over our lives, what's he going to decide? What kind of mood is this God in today? In our context, is he going to give us a thumbs up, blessing, mercy, grace? Or is he going to give us a thumbs down? Is he feeling angry today? We're afraid at any moment he might be in a bad mood. We might fall for the myth that the Old Testament God was all about judgment, whereas the New Testament God is all about love and grace, and so we prefer that God best, naturally. We see these two actions, right? The thumbs up, the thumbs down. We see those as polar opposites, a contradiction even. But when it comes to God, the prophets show us God that is both good and just. Who shows mercy, but also judges sin. The prophets don't see this at all as a contradiction. But actually, these two sides are complementary to God's perfect nature, We continue in our series through the Minor Prophets we've called Live Justly, Love Mercy. Each week we've seen a unique glimpse of God's heart in these books. In particular, we've been seeing God's heart for justice, which demands his care for the vulnerable, the weak, and it also demands judgment on injustice and evil. Last week in the book of Micah, we saw that God wants our whole heart. And if you remember, that book ends with a statement of God's nature. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Well, the prophet Nahum that we turn to this morning picks up that torch of God's nature. And this short book is a very stark picture of coming judgment. But we'll see this morning that even this gloom and doom that we see in this book, God's judgment on evil should actually be a source of hope and comfort for us as God's people. And so let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Our Father, we just sang in praise to you of your great name. And so we lift up the name of Jesus together with one voice, with one heart, and now in this moment we come to your word, totally dependent on your spirit, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to draw us together to the truth that you would have, not only to impact our minds, but our hearts and our lives. And so we give ourselves to you in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen so let's open now to the book of nahum to the very first verse nahum one and verse one an oracle concerning nineveh the book of the vision of nahum of Elkosh. so this opening verse as many of the minor prophets do they have the first verse that sort of sets the scene the who the what and the why so the prophet is nahum and all we really know of this guy comes from this verse his name means comfort or consolation. And if you've read this book before, that might seem a little ironic to you. But I want you to hang on to that idea of comfort, because it's actually going to be crucial to the way that we understand and apply this book. But he's from Elkosh, and it's not known exactly where that was. There's been lots of suggestions thrown out. Some think it wasn't that far from Nineveh. In modern-day Iraq, there's a synagogue at, El- at Kosh that's claimed to belong to the prophet Nahum. But some think he was from southern Judah, even Capernaum. If you remember, that's where Jesus would do much of his ministry. Capernaum is from the Hebrew "kafar" or town, so "kafar Nahum, town of Nahum. It's an interesting possibility, but we can't know for sure. What's important, though, is his message, which he calls an oracle. And that just means a prophetic saying. Here in this book, these oracles are poetic, poetic judgments pronounced against, in this case, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. We know the destruction of Nineveh happened in 612 BC, and it seems Nahum prophesied not too long, maybe even a few years before this event. If you've been keeping up with our series, the city of Nineveh should sound familiar to you, because, of course, that's where God sent Jonah. Jonah. To preach. And that's it. the city, as we saw in Jonah a couple of weeks ago, the city of Nineveh repented of their evil and injustice, and God showed them mercy. But Nahum shows that the following generations not only picked up the evil that their people had done but and repeated the sins of their parents, but it got worse and worse somehow. If you remember, Assyria it was one of the most violent and cruel and wicked and unjust empires in all of human history. God showed them even mercy. God even sent them a Hebrew prophet. God delayed his judgment for so long, but the prophet Nahum finally comes along to say, now's the time for judgment. Judgment is going to fall at last on Nineveh. In other words, this is the message Jonah wished he got to preach. He wished he could have said something like this. Nahum's writing is dark. At first it seems like it's only doom and gloom, but as we dig a little bit deeper below the surface, we see Nahum revealing the nature of a sovereign, all-powerful God. And if God is truly just, to bring deliverance from oppression will of course mean that God has to deal with the oppressor. So let's not dismiss Nahum as just death and destruction that we'd rather avoid. Because bad news for the oppressor is actually very good news for the oppressed. It's very good news for everybody else. Think of Adolf Hitler in his final days, hiding in his bunker, hearing the news of the impending fall of Berlin. That's some very bad news for Adolf. But it's very good news for the rest of the world. And that's what's happening here in the book of Nahum. Unlike Jonah, Nahum wasn't sent to preach to Nineveh. Nahum wrote these words for God's people in Judah. So the purpose of this book isn't to spread fear and doom and gloom. It's actually to give comfort. In verse 1, these oracles of Nahum are called a book. This is the only prophetic book to actually call itself a book. And that's significant because rather than being a collection of sermons like many of the prophets are, this book likely started out as writing. Maybe even being circulated as something like an underground pamphlet during the times of Assyrian persecution. See, context changes everything. Context changes everything. This news of coming judgment on the unjust meant God's deliverance of his faithful remnant. And this book carries the same force for us today. Nahum speaks to all human suffering at the hands of evil. God's treatment of all violent empires and world systems. This, Nahum says, is how God runs the world. Though it seems like evil has its way for a time, God won't let it endure. And that is very good news. And so that frames how we look at this book. So with that in mind, let's dive into these verses a little bit. Let's look again at what we just heard in the scripture reading, but now with this context of comfort. Remembering God's goodness and judgment are not contradictions, but they both work together in God's nature. So look again at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. If you only read verse 2, we might miss the point. We might think God is only angry and wrathful. That's just who he is. Now, verse 2 is true of God, isn't it? But it's far from the complete picture. We need verse 3 to enter into the equation. Yes, God is angry at sin, but he's slow to anger. And we need to hold those, both of those truths together. And we see that, of course, with Nineveh. An empire, if there ever was an empire that deserved God's wrath, it was this empire. And yet God was gracious. God was merciful. Sending a Hebrew prophet to them that they might repent and be spared. And then he gives them another century, generation after generation, to repent. As Peter writes, God is not willing that any should perish. God is patient. He wants everyone to come to repentance and find his grace. That is God's will. But if that mercy is refused, if that injustice persists, then a truly loving and just God must deal with evil. Verse 3 is a quote from Exodus 34. In Exodus, this is when Israel made a golden calf. Remember while Moses was up on Mount Sinai? God himself passes before Moses, reveals just a little bit of his glory, and God says these words about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, we heard that in the book of Jonah. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, mercy and judgment. Grace, justice, held together perfectly in God's nature. Now, this is really hard for us to put together, isn't it? We rarely see it lived out in people. We see mercy, we see love sometimes, but hardly ever do we see anger, do we see wrath worked out well, do we? Some of us live with the scars of an angry or wrathful parent or caregiver. Maybe they flew off the handle, they were quick to judge everything you did harshly. And when we see God described in those terms... We want nothing to do with that kind of God, understandably so. Why? Because we've only seen the perversion of anger. We've only seen the perversion of wrath, not the real thing. So we have to be very, very careful not to ascribe to God those things that we see on our own hearts and those things that we see in others when it comes to these aspects of his nature. See, unlike us, God's judgment, as one author writes, is never based on a whim like ours. It's never based on uncontrollable anger, but on God's unchangingly holy nature. In other words, God always responds perfectly to any situation, never too much, never too little. And I can't relate to this. As a parent, I feel like I struggle every single day trying to find the right combination of grace and discipline to bring up my kids, to guide them. And so often I get it wrong, and I find myself telling them that. Hey, kids, Dad needs Jesus just as much, if not more, than you do. But God doesn't have that problem. God always acts perfectly in every situation. Whether He's showing mercy, whether He's bringing judgment, it is the right and perfect thing to do. This word avenging has the idea of continuous activity, as in God is always about the work of justice in the world. And even this idea of jealousy, which again is always bad in our hearts, is a very positive thing with God. He alone is God, so he has the right, and he is right, to not tolerate rivals. And this word means not only jealous, but zealous. God is zealous about his own glory. God is zealous for the well-being of his people. This section in this book is an acrostic poem, meaning each line in the Hebrew starts with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And an acrostic usually represents completeness. Well, Nahum certainly isn't telling us everything about the nature of God, he is giving us a true picture that God's people at this time and we today need to see. A God who is all-powerful, a God who is sovereign, and a God who is coming to their rescue. So again, these are fearful words for the oppressor, but very, very good news for the oppressed. So to us today, this should be a comfort, these words. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and karma wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Make up your mind, Nahum. Don't you want to say that after reading these verses? I mean, is God wrathful or is he good? What are you trying to say, Nahum? And Nahum responds, yes. Nahum shows us a God who comes out like a mighty warrior against evil and injustice and defending his people. So yes, for Nineveh, judgment is coming. It's a sure thing. He concludes chapter two with the words, "I am against you." He repeats those words in chapter three: "I am against you." Are there any more chilling and terrifying words to hear from God? Like an emperor in the Colosseum giving the signal, the time for mercy is past. Judgment is coming. Flip to the very end of the book of Nahum. Look at the last two verses. Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. And there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? If you remember a couple of weeks ago, the book of Jonah ends with a question too. There it was God reasoning with Jonah saying, shouldn't, should I not show mercy to this great city? And here we see the reverse question. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? In other words, don't you see Assyria that it is very right and fitting? Don't you see why people will clap and celebrate at your downfall? Am I not right to bring judgment? And again, we have to agree with God's question. Yes, God, you always do right. You were right to show mercy to Nineveh over a century before this. And now, yes, God, you are right. You are good to bring judgment. And this is the God that we take refuge in. This God of all power. This God of perfect justice and perfect love. So flip back to chapter 1. One more time. Chapter 1 and now verse 15. Remember, this whole book is the context of impending judgment against Nineveh. So in this context of judgment, look what he says in verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Peace. Remember, this is like the news of the fall of a terrible dictator. This is celebration time. Now there finally can be peace. And this book is about the fall of one specific evil empire, but it points ultimately to the end of all evil, the complete fullness of peace that is yet to come. And if this verse 115 sounds familiar, it's because the prophet Isaiah will quote it later to announce the return of exiles from captivity in Babylon. And the Apostle Paul will quote it again in the New Testament to point to proclaiming the ultimate peace found in Jesus Christ. Because again, while Nahum's message of judgment is meant to bring comfort and hope, it's not the whole story. As all the minor prophets do, they point forward. The same God who acted in history to overthrow Assyria, is the same God who would send his Son in the perfect culmination of mercy and judgment. Jesus coming for us most fully expresses God's nature and God's character. God's wrath being poured out on the sinless Savior so God's love and mercy could be poured out, could be freely offered to all people. You see, Christ's death and resurrection was the final nail in the coffin of evil. And while we still experience its effects here and now, the resurrection is the promise that just as surely as Nineveh was destroyed, so too will all evil and war and death come to an end. The apostle John orients our future hope at the end of the book of Revelation this way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And by faith, we celebrate that reality right now as believers. We can live out a taste of that perfect peace in our relationships with one another as we wait for its completion when Christ comes again. So to the wicked, to the unrepentant, evil oppressors, In history, God says, I am against you. Your days are numbered. But in the gospel, the ultimate good news, God says to all people who will receive it, I am for you. I am for you. See, our limited minds, we can't understand the ways of God and how all of this fits together. We're tempted to believe God is just angry at us and wrathful all the time. And Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, if you want to truly know what God is like, you look at me. If you want to know what God is really like, look at Jesus dying on the cross for you. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your invitation to see your need for forgiveness your desperate need to be reconciled with your creator. But this is the God who said, I will take care of their sin myself. Jesus will die in their place so I can pour out my grace, so I can pour out my mercy. And so our right response is to believe, to receive that grace that is ours in Christ. And for the believer, as we Consider and maybe wrestle with how to apply this very old, maybe strange book. Let's give thanks for God's nature, the great name that we sang about this morning and celebrate together. Let's give thanks for who God is, His perfect goodness, His perfect justice that will not let evil stand. And let's take comfort. Remember, like Judah in their time of persecution and oppression, the hands of Assyria passing around the scroll of Nahum to remind themselves what's true. Let's take the word of God seriously today. As we face the hopelessness that is everywhere in our world right now, the despair, the places we can go to when our eyes are only fixed on our immediate circumstances. Let's take comfort that God is present and at work. Not just on the world stage. Not just lifting up empires and kings and presidents. But in our lives, personally, every day. This God has a plan that ends with Jesus returning and making all things new. And so whatever your current struggles, whatever is most heavy on your heart right now, Let the book of Nahum point you to the comfort of Christ. Trusting that God sees you, that God knows all of those who take refuge in him. As Martin Luther said of this book, Nahum teaches us to trust God and believe, especially when we despair of all human help. The Lord stands by those who are his, shields them, shields his own against all attacks of the enemy. See, Nineveh, was an unconquerable foe for Israel. Humanly speaking, no hope whatsoever. It was nothing for God. So what seems unconquerable in our lives, what seems hopeless in our lives is an opportunity for faith, for trust, for deeper prayer. As we heard in the call to worship, Romans 8, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So take comfort. Take comfort. So I hope we can walk away from Nahum seeing God's mercy and judgment not as a contradiction, but complementary to his nature. I hope we can come away from these harsh words of judgment with a greater sense of comfort, a greater hope, knowing the all-powerful warrior God fights for his people. So let's Resist that temptation to view God like that fickle Roman emperor, on a whim, dispensing mercy or judgment, thumbs up, thumbs down. Let's remember that the true God always does right. Perfect justice, perfect love. When we're tempted to forget what God is really like, Nahum points us forward to Jesus Christ, to the cross. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks for your perfect nature, your perfect justice, your perfect goodness and love. We praise you as Nahum did, as Lord of hosts, conqueror, warrior God, our protector, our redeemer. We praise you for your Son who suffered death for us, satisfying your wrath against sin forever, defeating evil and death forever. So help us take comfort in that truth and grow our faith as we seek to serve together to build your kingdom as we wait for Christ's return. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: Let us stand.